This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. I want to uh, start off with a little bit of review from our last session before we get to the heart of today's uh, presentation or this afternoon's presentation. Uh, we started with a quotation in regards to God's church. It says, to God, the dearest object on earth is his church. This is the apple of his eye. And we also made the observation that this church is um, divided between two major groups. Uh, we looked at this quotation from Faith I Live by 305. Has God no living church? He has a church, but it is the church militant, not the church triumphant. We are sorry that there are defective members. While the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted, Satan at the same time brings persons who are not converted into its fellowship. While Christ is sowing the good seed, Satan is sowing the tares. There are two opposing influences continually exerting on the members of the church. One influence is working for the purification of the church and the other for the corrupting of the people of God. And so we said that there's two groups, the church militant and the church triumphant, and these two are uh, coexisting within the Adventist church. Uh, we said that the church began with different beginnings. Uh, it had an end-time focus in 1844, 1888. It had uh, salvation emphasis, and then we said in 1960, it had the evangelical turn, and this is where we came up with the term liberal and conservative. And then in 1990, we had the uh, worship renewal within the church as well. And uh, we said that some things that have impacted our church was the university explosion taking a place around the world. Loma Linda and Andrews became universities. In 1980, uh, Andrews began doctoral programs, and in 1990, you had a university explosion around the world. And so we said that because of the universities and the doctoral programs, that questions were being asked that were not asked before. And so we had some questions that needed answering. Then we talked about the divisions within the Adventist church. We said that there's biblical Adventists, and they had the end-time beginnings with uh, the 1888 emphasis without deterrence. And I said that the average layperson sitting in the pew today, I believe, is a biblical Adventist today. Then we have the evangelical Adventist. These are uh, individuals that took the soteriological turn, or the salvation turn of the 1960s, and they're based in evangelical theology, reduction of Adventism to generic Christianity. And so this is kind of a, a more evangelical Adventist. Then you had the generic Adventist, the liberals' 1960s sociological turn, plus the culture of the 1990s and the secularization of Adventism. And these are more of what we'd call our progressive Adventists that believe that culture and our church should, uh, should in integrate a little bit more and that the church needs to uh, be more relevant. And they believe that our doctrines were a starting point, but that there needs to be a development in how our doctrines work. Then we have our separationists. They believe that the church is Babylon and they have independent home church movements, many times more critical of the church and focusing on the apostasy thereof. And we talked about these different labels, moderate, liberal, conservative, right-wing, left-wing, extreme right, centrist, fanatic, and balanced. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that later. And this was uh, the quotation that we talked about 
The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. And so we said stay on the ship, even though it may seem a little shaky at points. And so we said that three things that impact how we view Scripture, morality, how we live, our experience, and our source. Those are uh, important considerations when we talk about how we view Scripture. All right, so we come to today's presentation, uh, the forgotten question of identity, why? Now, this is a fundamental question that I believe that every Adventist needs to ask themselves, and that is why you are an Adventist. And these are some questions that uh, we, we arrive at, and these are some top ten reasons why this person has chosen to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and it's from a more progressive uh, magazine, and uh, you'll notice the, the nature of these top ten reasons. These are top ten reasons why this person is a Seventh-day Adventist. And let's see if some of yours correlate with this. All right, number one, or number ten, I don't want to miss Sunday football games. All right, they're being a little bit facetious, but they're being truthful at the same time a little bit. Uh, so they go to church on Saturday. That way they get to watch football on Sundays. The Pathfinder honor sash not yet filled. All right, he's being more facetious. Okay. Um, have too much tithe invested. Addicted to super links. Number seven. Number six. I still have a set of Bible story books and an Eric B. Hare recording of Mr. Crooked Ears. Number five. Want to see how the great controversy turns out. Number four. That holistic thing. Talking about our health message. Uh, number three. I love my Adra t-shirt. Number two. I left out that magazine. All right, good. I have a lifelong subscription to an Adventist magazine. They actually named the magazine here. Uh, number one, the people. I just love being a part of a worldwide family. Now, I, I will say that these reasons in of themselves are not necessarily wrong. I'd say most of them are okay, uh, I think, right? But is this reason enough? Now, I want you to know, notice the nature of these, that most of them are cultural. In other words, they like haystacks, they like veggie links, they like adra, uh, and they, they like potlucks and coming together with the Adventist community and so forth, and, and they like the cultural nuances of our church. And I, I, like, I like our culture. I think we have some good things. But is that, is that enough? What do you do when these things disappear? And so, uh, when we talk about this question of identity, there are certain groups within our church that believe that, hey, I appreciate the culture. I've grown up fourth-generation Adventist. I've grown up in an Adventist community. I like all these things. I want to keep the culture. But these doctrines? Uh, let's, let's change some of these doctrines. And so this is, this is kind of an undercurrent that's happening in some circles. They, they appreciate the, the kind of the husk of Adventism, but they want to take away some of, some of the things that are more core and central, at least what I believe is core and central. And so if you take away uh, our doctrines and our beliefs and, and you hold on to these things, uh, there's no reason why we can't just meld with the, with the corpus of Christianity, uh, except we eat veggie links. Okay, so... So is there something more? Now, I want to look at this when we talk about this question of identity. Uh, 
this is a, a pie graph of our world population divided up by religious groups. And so you see that Christianity is uh, roughly a third, 33%. And this includes uh, Orthodox, Catholics, uh, Pentecostals, eh, we're in there. Then you have our next group, uh, 21% Islam, uh, with their different uh, subsets there. Non-religious, 16%. Hindus. Then you have uh, this group right here, Chinese traditional, uh, Buddhist, and then you have other. And so this, this describes where our, uh, our religions are today. Uh, these are broken down into groups here. Uh, Christianity, 2.1 billion. Islam, 1.3 billion. You have atheists, 1.1 billion, and they include secular, non-religious, agnostic atheists. Hindus, 900 million. Chinese traditional, 394 million. Buddhist, 376 million. Uh, then you have the African traditional, 100 million. And Sikhism, 23 million. These are how you can break up Christians. 2.1 billion Christians. Roman Catholics, 1.1 billion. And Orthodox, 261 million. And the, it goes down. And look at where we are. Well, this was older slide. This is actually more. All right. We're, I, I think we're at 17 million right now. All right. Yeah, I think they've lost a lot. Yeah. So this may need a little bit of updating. But on the general whole, you see that uh, compared to some of these other denominations, we are very uh, small, relatively. Okay, now I'm proud of the 17 million that we have, but in comparison with these other ones, we, we, are, we are in the minority. Now the question is, why have you decided to be part of that group versus these other groups, and then you come outside of Christianity, and then you have a whole corpus of other beliefs? And the question is, why are you here? That's a very fundamental question. And this is a question that many Christians have asked and many Adventists have asked. Do you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? How many of you say yes? <laughs> all right, all right, I'm going to qualify this. Don't, don't, don't leave just yet. All right, all right. Do you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? Uh, how many of you say no? <laughs> all right. How many of you don't know? <laughs> How many say yes? Okay, so, all right, I, I say no, all right? Well, we know that there's going to be people in heaven that aren't Seventh-day Adventists. Right, it may be shocking, all right? You get to heaven, they're not going to be all Seventh-day Adventists. Now, the question is, if you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, are you, are you looking at the, this question here? If you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, then why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? All right, I'm, I'm not going to end here, okay? Just stay with me. It sure seems like we're going through a lot of trouble for nothing. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? If we talk about this salvation question and we get to the very root of it, which is salvation, and you, you just answered the question and said, you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, then what is the motivation for why you are where you are? And furthermore, why should you do evangelism? 
If a Lutheran is perfectly saved in a relationship with Jesus, why rock the boat and shatter their whole world when they're saved? Because we believe that the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? We're in agreement here? Whether you're a Seventh-day Adventist, whether you're a Methodist, whether you're any other Protestant denomination, or I would dare say even a Catholic, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So, why are, are we here? Why do we, why do we exist? What, what, what is our identity? What is the motivation for why we are who we are? And where's the sense of urgency for why we should knock on some doors like we're going to do this Saturday afternoon you know, and blitz this city when many of those people are in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh, this is an important question. Oh, should we just do it just to do it? Because, no. Um, what do, and this is the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves. Is, does truth really matter? Okay, does truth really matter? And how it relates to where we're living today, all right? Now, when we talk about this concept of truth... Uh, we many times think of it in propositional terms. We think of truth as a theory and a concept. Now, uh, I'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 6. And this is so antithetical to our Greek minds and our propositions of truth. And, and Jesus makes this incredible um, profound statement in John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I, I want you to notice that first part. He says, I am the way, and he says, I am the truth. Notice that Jesus didn't say, the truth is about me. But Jesus said, I am the truth. In other words, truth exists or is talking about his person. All right. Now, I can't say that. I can't say David Shin is the truth. God can say that. All right. But notice that Jesus presents truth as far more than a concept or an idea. Are you following me here? So when we talk about propositions or truth, uh, Jesus places it in the corpus of, of his person. This is, this is so profound when, when you think about it, that when we're talking about truth, we're talking about not an idea, but about Jesus. Are you following me? And uh, you ever hear this before? Pastor, uh, don't preach doctrine. Uh, preach Jesus. Now, I, I will say that we should never preach a doctrine isolated from Jesus. Every doc, and I think that sometimes we've done that. Now, but this notion that doctrine is antithetical to Christ is really a misunderstanding because you just have to ask them this question. You say, 
do you believe that Jesus is coming very soon to take us home? And you say, yes. Well, there you have a doctrine. Amen? It's known as the second coming. Do you believe that Jesus forgives you for your sins? Yes. Well, there you have a doctrine. It's known as justification. Well, do you believe that Jesus is right now in the heavenly sanctuary interceding on our behalf and that he's our mediator? Yes. Well, there you have a doctrine. And so when we talk about truth, or when we talk about doctrine, Jesus presents it as being his person. And so this is a very compelling thing when we talk about truth, is that Jesus presents it in a relational term. For those of you that are married, the truth about that person is very important. I had a friend of mine that got married to somebody and they were living a double life. Actually, he, she thought that he was an upstanding businessman and, and they were going through years of marriage. Just, he would come home from work every day and, and, and they would have dinner together and, and suddenly, uh, years down the road, her whole fantasy of her marriage or is really a figment it was a facade, came crashing down around her because she found out that he was actually involved in the mafia. He was a criminal. And, and the whole home life was a charade. Now, did truth about her husband matter to her? You better believe it. I mean, that, that just shattered the whole world. And so when we talk about Jesus and we talk about truth, truth becomes very important. And it impacts your relationship. And so this, this is a fundamental, fundamental thing that we're talking about when we talk about truth. It's relational. Now, there's another element of truth that I'd like to bring out. And that's found in Mark chapter 4, verse 28. This is what many people misunderstand when it comes to truth. Number one, they think that truth is just propositional. And the other one is that they don't re- realize how important truth is for their lives, their Christian life, their day-to-day life. Mark chapter 4 and verse 28. Everyone there? All right. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the what? The sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, I want you to look at this concept. We're told in Christ's object lessons that this is really talking about the Christian life. That the Christian life is equated to the growth of a plant. And it says that first you have the blade, then the head, and then after that, the full grain. I think I have a picture here. Oh, there we go. All right. So, Jesus uses this metaphor to describe the Christian life. In other words, when you're born again, that's precisely what you are. You are born. But after your birth, there comes growth. Praise the Lord. Amen? Now, when I accepted the Lord Jesus, uh, I came to him with a lot of problems. All right, a lot of character deficiencies, a lot of issues. But he accepted me just the way that I was. Amen? We come to him just the way that we are. That's what steps of Christ tell us. But he loves us too much to leave us in that condition. And I praise the Lord that when I look back on my Christian life, I am a better Christian today than I was 10 years ago or five years ago. 
meaning that my character, uh, by the grace of God, is becoming more Christ-like. Now, I have a long way to go, but day by day, by step by step, there's, there's this element of growth involved in the Christian experience. I have this journal that I've kept um, from the beginning of my Christian experience, and I read my beginning journal entries, and I just shake my head. You ever do that? I'm just like, oh, Lord, whoa, I just had, no, you know. And uh, it's interesting because if I read my journal issue, uh, uh, entries five years from now and I look at today, I'll just shake my head again. I'll be like, well, because there's growth in the Christian experience. Now, I want you to notice this, that there is this element of growth, but at the end, notice what happens. There's a sickle. There's a harvest that takes place. Now, when do you harvest? All right, you harvest here. You, know, you ever garden before and, and a sprout comes up and you bring out that sickle. You're like, I'm ready for the harvest. That's, that's not how you do it. You wait till that, that, that plant comes to a certain point of what? Of maturity. Then, then the sickle comes. Is everyone following me? And so Jesus says that the Christian experience is like a growth, but the harvest is when the entity is, is mature, is ripe. Now, look at this. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it's interesting what happens when Jesus comes. Revelation chapter 14, verse 16. Everyone there? So he sat, this is Jesus, so he sat on the cloud and thrust in his what? Sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And look in verse 14. And I looked, and behold, on a white cloud... Um, one sat the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, look at the implication of this. When Jesus illustrates the Christian life as a growing experience, and when Jesus is coming in the second time, and he has in his hand a sickle, what type of Christian is Jesus coming for? He's coming for a ripe Christian. He's coming for a mature Christian. All right? Now, I, I believe that every person that follows the line of the Christian experience, given time, will reach a certain state of maturity. It's a, it's a law of the process that we engage in. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. But notice when Jesus comes, he's coming with a sickle. All right, now follow me here. This is from Christ's Object Lessons. Notice this. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life. And the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace. There can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. As its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so the development of the Christian life. Notice this concept of perfection here. At every stage of development, our life may be what? Perfect. Now, many times we think of perfection as, as a state. But the Bible presents perfection, according to the spirit of prophecy here, that you can be perfect in this stage. Amen? As long as you're living up to the light that you have and you're where God needs you to be. Now, granted, God wants to take you in a certain trajectory. All right? But at this stage, you can be perfect. You, this stage, you can be perfect. This stage, you can be perfect. And when Jesus comes a second time, he's coming for a people that have reached maturity. I like to use that word better, because perfection is really dealing with every stage. 
At every stage of development, our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be a continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. As our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge, and our knowledge will increase, we shall become strong to bear responsibility, and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. Now, I want to ask you this question. What do you think helps you to grow as a Christian. Now, we did say here at the beginning that every person, regardless whether Roman Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, can accept Jesus and their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But that is just the beginning. Amen? There's growth involved. What helps you to grow? There's, there's several different things, but uh, obviously you need the Holy Spirit, you need all these other entities that come into play, but you know what is the fertilizer that helps you to grow at a rapid pace as a Christian more than any other thing? You know somebody that, um, I know someone that's like this, they, they, they accepted Christ and in a short period of time, they just shoot up. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I know one person that's a predominant minister today that, that is a relatively new Adventist, but they just shot up. There's different factors involved in this, but I believe that the entity that enables a Christian to grow at a rapid pace is this element of truth. Fundamentals of Education 432, notice this. There is no sanctification, that means growth. There is no growth aside from what? Truth. John 17, exactly. Through thy truth, thy word is truth. Thank you. And so when we talk about growth, it is directly proportional to truth. In other words, if you have error, it will stunt your growth as a Christian in development. And so this is very important when we talk about truth, that if you want to grow as a Christian, not only must you understand the truth, but obviously you need to live the truth as well. And so a person that has shot up very quickly, they're in, number one, they have the truth, but their interaction with truth is that they always follow it. No matter how little or how great that truth is, their attitude is, whatever it is, I'm going to do it by God's grace. And that enables that person to grow. There is no growth without truth. That's, that's very important to realize. And notice what Jesus is coming at the end of time. He's coming for Christians that have reached a certain state of what? Maturity. He's coming with a sickle. Okay? So in order to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus, follow me, you need to grow as a Christian, but there is no growth without truth. So you can knock on that door this Saturday, say, do you love Jesus? Amen. Well, let me share with you some truth that will prepare you to meet him. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen? That, that's, that's compelling. That's very important because there have been some errors out there, and that is stunting these peoples whose names are written in Lamb's Book of Life, but it's stunting their growth as a Christian because truth and growth are directly proportional. Everyone following me along these lines? So if you want to grow as a Christian, we need to, we need to love the truth. We need to know the truth. It's a very important thing. Now, first, we talked about that truth is not just propositional. It has to do with the person of Jesus. Second, we established that truth has to do with, with growth. Now, this is what I believe is the most compelling. And as an Adventist. And this is why I believe 
We need to do everything in our power to evangelize. It's, it's this third reason right here. Now, there's people out there that say that, oh, we, no, we don't need to do evangelism. Just leave them where they're at. All right? Why rock the boat? They actually criticize our methods of evangelism. Now, granted, we can always improve. But this is the most compelling reason to me of why we should do everything in our power with every breath to share this message. All right? It has to do with this right here. Look in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. We know this well. Revelation chapter 14. And for the sake of time, let's actually go down to the third angel's message. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Now, this is part of the three angels' message, the third one. Now, in a nutshell, the third angel's message says essentially that if you worship the beast or you receive his mark in your forehead or in your hand, you will be lost. All right? Life and death message. Now, hold that thought and go back to Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus is looking down through the end of time, and the disciples have asked him this question regarding the signs of his coming, and notice the first thing that comes out of Christ's mouth. He's speaking to the Christian church. This is for us. This is a message of warning. And look in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4, and Jesus answered and said to them, this is the first thing that comes out of the mouth of Christ, take heed that no one, what does the Bible say? Deceive you. In other words, I want you to think about this. Jesus is looking down through the end, there's a lot of things that he can talk about, but his primary concern for the Christian church is this concept of deception. Absolutely. He says later on that the deception will be so great that if possible, it deceive the very elect. Now the question is why? Why is Jesus so concerned about deception? Now, deception is directly related to truth. Amen? In other words, if you know the truth, you're not deceived. So it, it, it has to do... Everything to do with truth. Jesus looks down to the end of time and he's talking to the Christian church and he says, do not be deceived or let no man deceive you. And the question is, why? This is the reason. The price of deception in the end of time will cost you your salvation. Everyone following me? In other words, right now, I don't believe that it's right now, but there will come a point in the future when if you believe this lie, no matter how sincere you may be in believing it, if you subscribe to this notion, you will be lost. And if your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, believing in this lie will cause you to forfeit 
your salvation. Your name will be removed. So right now we live in this era of, of kind of, uh, we have this, uh, we have the true church and then we have, you know, other entities out here. And then we have this blurred, blurred area, uh, this gray area. In, in other words, if you are a Baptist today and you believe in the sanctity of Sunday, well, you're deceived, but you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you die today, you're going to be in heaven by the grace of God. Amen? But there's coming a point in the future when those that are alive when Jesus comes, there's going to be a polarizing in the world between the truth and a lie, between what God desires and between what man desires, and there's going to be a forcing of the ranks. And essentially, if you believe this, you're going to be lost. And this is where I believe this, this message becomes so imperative. Because how many of you walking the streets with people know if that person is going to be alive or not when Jesus comes? You don't. You have no understanding or no idea if that person is going to be alive or, or, or pass away before Jesus comes. And so this concept of deception is very important when we, when we talk about this. And this is the crowning act of deception. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in Revelation. We know that before Jesus comes a second time, you're not only going to see Jesus face to face, you're going to see the devil face to face. All right? Although he's not going to appear like the devil, he's going to appear like the Son of God. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out among the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He quotes scripture. He heals the diseases of the people, and then in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. Now, I want you to notice the goal of this deception. He comes in, in, in a beautiful package, but then... The hook is this element here. He wants them to hollow Sunday. Why? Because he knows that in the end, this deception, if they hollow this day, that everyone who hollows it will be lost. Now, I want to ask you this question. Who is this deception aimed at? The saved or the lost? Obviously, obviously the saved. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is the point that becomes very important. He declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day are blaspheming his name by refusing to listen to his angels sent to them with light and truth. This is a strong, almost overmastering delusion. 
And so this is a very important question of identity that we need to, we need to grapple with. This is a life and death message. It has salvation implications written all over it. So when you knock on that door, when you interact with people, truth becomes very important because truth will be the determiner between the lost and the saved in the end of time. And so, man, what a motivation to go out this Saturday. Amen? Amen. Or, Or even in your workplace because you know that this will impact their salvation in one way or another. Now, with that in mind, the second part of the seminar is called A Close Look at Our Face. Amnesia and Adventism, first part dealing with that we haven't really grappled with our own questions of identity. And we talked about this concept of truth, that it's not just propositional, but it has to deal with the person of Jesus and also has to deal with the Christian growth as well as the end-time message, the life-and-death message that we have to deal with. But a close look at our face, I'd like to delve into uh, this question of where is the center. You ever asked yourself this before? Uh, um, Or perhaps you've thought this of being a centrist. You surprised and, and you notice that everyone thinks that they're balanced. <laughs> I, the yeah, I, I've never met a person that, that honestly thought that they were in balance. Everyone else is extreme. You know, everyone else is right or left, but I, I'm just in the center. I'm a moderate. And this is a concept that really is, is kind of flawed when we think about it, when we talk about balance. And, and some people say, oh, that person's imbalanced. You heard that before? Or you say, I, I want to be more balanced. Well, what does that mean when we throw around these terms? And, and we have these labels that we talk about. And as I illustrated in our previous, we have, we have moderate, which is the center, or what we think is the center. We have liberal, conservative, right-wing, left-wing, extreme, centrist, fanatic, balanced. And when we talk about this, especially in relation to our church, and, and some people have said that... Uh, You've probably heard it before. They say, oh, GYC is, you know, they use a pejorative term in relationship to GYC. Or because it's all, it's all relative to a certain perspective. And when we talk about these things, I, I want us to really think about what we are saying when we use some of these labels. Now, granted, I, I don't think it's wrong in and of itself to use some of these, but I want us to think at some of the assumptions. Now, when I took a philosophy class, I, I studied this guy named Hegel. Hegel, can't even say him right. And um, it, was, it was fascinating when, when he presented his concept. He said, basically, you have thesis on one end. You have antithesis on the other end. All right? And then, and then you have synthesis. You have these extremes on one end, and, and truth is somewhere in the middle. It's, it's kind of bringing together of these two entities. Now, we normally think, oh, this, this can't be right, because how can we do this? But this is, this is what happens. You have what people describe as the extreme left, then you have the extreme right, and then you have the center. It's basically this concept that we get from this, this philosopher, all right? 
Now, I want us to think about this because it's, it's very relative. I want us to look at Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? What is the extreme left in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I can't even imagine, but let's not go there. It's, it's immorality, for the lack of a better term. All right? Now, I don't want to use extreme left because that is I want one side, okay? Immorality. On the other side, the extreme is, is abstinence. If you are a single person in Sodom and Gomorrah and you don't practice all these sexual diversions and, and you practice abstinence, you are an extremist. You're a fanatic. Now, what if you went to Sodom and Gomorrah and said, I'm going to be a centrist? Where would you be? Oh, I just have a couple uh, relationships. Uh, I, I'm not extreme. I, I don't go out and do that, and I'm certainly not that. I, I'm right here. I, I just have a few relationships a month, and so forth. And so when we talk about this, these labelings and so forth, what happens is that people look around them and look at two different perspectives and say, I'm going I'm to choose the center. Now, there's a quotation here that's coming up. Okay, maybe I don't have it, but I'll, I'll quote it later here. Now, this is what we need to be by the grace of God. We need to be centered on the word. Amen? Now, culture will change. It'll go back and forth, and hey, sometimes the center on the word may actually be the center, okay? And it doesn't matter. But you need to be centered. And sometimes being centered on the word may, it may look like you're on the extreme left. Okay? Being centered on the word may look like you're on the extreme right. And we need to use that as our moral compass. And basically, look at this. Uh, this really made me think. When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, straight-laced, extremists. I want you to think about that. In other words, if you're using the world as your center, you're always going to be off-center when it comes to the Bible. And this is something that we need to think about, that if you're centered in the world, sometimes the world is going to view you as an extremist, as a fanatic, as just like overboard. And this is what we need to remember when we're dealing with these terms is that, hey, if you're anchored in the Word, let the labels fall wherever they may be. All right, it doesn't matter. I've been called all kinds of things. All right, but don't let that shake you. Don't think, oh, man, but if, as long as you're, you're centered right here, you're anchored in a point. And let's not use culture and society as, as our relative voice. But God would have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and Bible only as a standard of all doctrines. We quoted this earlier. And the basis of all reforms, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one or all of these, should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religion's faith before accepting any doctrine or precept. We should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Amen. So that, that, we just need to be centered on the Bible. That's the bottom line. Now, this is a question that people have asked, what framework in the Bible keeps us centered? And I think that this is something that has not been appreciated as much. 
All right? And it's, it's quite evident. Psalm 77, verse 13 says, Your way is in the sanctuary. Believe it or not, the sanctuary will keep you more balanced than any other structure in the Bible. All right? I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. But I, I think that people that become imbalanced, uh, if they would understand the sanctuary... Um, it, it just brings out such beautiful harmony all the way through. In- interestingly enough, you can find the sanctuary from Genesis to Revelation. All right? it's, it's, it's a theme that runs all the way through. So when you're using this as a center, it's not like you're using some obscure text somewhere. It, it is harmonious all the way through, and this is from great controversy that illustrates it as well. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the great disappointment. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and the revealing present day as it brought to light the position and work of his people. I want you to notice this here. It opened to view a complete what? System of truth. So when we talk about the sanctuary, it brings together a lot of different elements in Scripture and it presents this great system of truth. This is, this is really theological language. People say that Ellen White's just devotional. This is, she's, she's acting or presenting a theological concept when she talks about this system of truth. This is what we call systematic theology in a regard. So, she says that as Adventists, this is what brings everything together. And I'd like to illustrate it here. I think I have a picture coming up. Um, so here we have a bird's eye view of the sanctuary. And I'd like to show just very simply how the sanctuary gives us ba- balance when it comes to just, just the concept of the gospel. All right? Here we have what we would call justification in the court. That's where the lamb was slain. That's where forgiveness happened. This is where the cross was. Justification in the court. Now, you know where evangelicals camp out? Right here. The cross. Now, I believe in the cross. I believe in the beauty of justification. But evangelicals and Lutheran theology is centered on the courtyard experience. Everything else is peripheral. And when you center something in the courtyard, uh, other things become minimal. Are you following me along those lines? Now, now when you read Lutheran theology, he minimizes ethics. Minimizes human behavior. Not that he doesn't believe in human... And he even minimizes the law. Why is that? Because he believes that this is the center of theology. Now, we have the next step here, and this is uh, sanctification. This is Christian growth. You have the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And I want you to notice the progression here. We're outside. We come in, but notice the goal. The goal is is here. Uh, Incidentally, when Adam and Eve sinned, or before Adam and Eve sinned, they, they were able to stand face to face with God. Open communion. Sin separated us from God, so we're out here, and the sanctuary simply portrays how the process of how God brings us back here. So if you camp out here, uh, that's, that's a part of it, but it's not everything. God, God has 
the, the concept of bringing us here. Then you have sanctification over here. And you know who camps out over there or has a very heavy sanctification emphasis? It's uh, our friends, the Roman Catholics. Very heavy sanctification emphasis. In fact, it's sanctification by works. All right? And that's why you have the, the sacraments that come into play. And so it's a minimizing of this. Now, what about Adventists? You know, the beauty of Adventist theology is that we say we take the whole thing. Amen? We believe in this experience, but we believe in this experience as well. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And that is what I believe brings out beautiful harmony and balance to the Christian experience. Now, there have been people that make emphasis or, or camp out in different areas, you know, even within our church, all right? But we need to keep in mind that this is a very important thing. Incidentally, um, in our next presentation this afternoon, I'm going to be looking at the most attacked doctrine. You know what it is? It's a sanctuary. And I'm going to be looking historically. It seems like in every generation uh, within our church, every several years, there comes someone that stands up and challenges our notion of the sanctuary. All right? And, and I'll be illustrating that in our, in our next presentation. Now, when we talk about the sanctuary, I'd just like to illustrate in just, way, uh, just one way how beautifully balanced um, the sanctuary was, even in the little nuances of color here. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. How much time do we have here? Numbers 4, 5, and 6. Uh, what time am I supposed to end? 11.30. Oh, my. Okay. Well, if you grant me just a little bit of a, uh, overtime here, but I understand if you have to leave. All right, Numbers 4, 5, and 6. I just want to show you very quickly how beautifully uh, illustrated, even in the colors of the sanctuary, how how God um, presents the gospel. In Numbers 4, 5, and 6, And when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Remember, the Old Testament sanctuary was a portable one, at least the first mosaic one. So as the pillar of cloud would move on, they would have to, they would have to pack up the sanctuary. And God gave very specific instructions as to how they were to pack the sanctuary up. The Levites would go and, and follow these specific instructions, and they would start with the Ark of the Covenant. And they shall put on it a covering, verse 6, of badger skins and spread over that cloth entirely of what color? Of blue, and they shall insert its poles. And so here we have this text on the screen. The Ark of the Testimony was to be covered in the color blue. And so this was, is an illustration of what it would look like as the priests were going from place to place. They would actually see the blue covering on top of the ark. Very specific as to the colors in which the sanctuary was to be packed. Jesus, or God, goes on in Numbers chapter 4, verse 9 and 11. Uh, if you read there, they go to another article of furniture, and they shall take, are you there, Numbers chapter 4, verse 9, they shall take a what color? A blue cloth and cover the lampstands with light 
with its lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays, and its oil vessels, which they service it. So not only were they covered the Ark of the Covenant, but they would also cover the lampstands with blue as well. And then we go to verse 11. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. And so you see that these other articles of furniture were to be covered in blue as well. The utensils were to be covered in a blue cloth. Now, we look in the Bible, and the Bible actually tells us what they were to remember when they looked at blue. And so go to Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 and 39. Numbers fifteen thirty-eight and 39. <clears throat> God had uh, uh, something they wanted to remember when, when they thought or looked at this blue color, Numbers 15, verse 38 and 39. Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels in the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a what color? To put a blue color thread in the tassels of their corners. And so when they were to wear the specific clothing, they were to wear or have these blue thread in the tassels of the corner. And so shall you have the tassels that you may look upon it and remember all the, all the what? What does the Bible say? All the commandments of the Lord and do them. So the Bible tells us that they were to weave a blue cloth in and every time they looked at the blue cloth, they were to remember the commandments of God. And so we have this illustration here of the blue thread, and this is a picture of a modern-day one here and the commandments. Now, go to Numbers chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, and it's interesting that when they come to another article of, of furniture, that it was to be a little bit of difference in the packing when they came to the table of showbread. Numbers 4, verse 7 and 8, on the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth, all right, same thing, and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for the pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. But they did something a little bit different in verse 8, and they shall spread over them a what color? A scarlet cloth, and cover the same with the covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. So isn't it interesting, when they come to the table of showbread, which represents the bread of life, they were to cover it in blue, but over the blue they were to cover it in, in red. And we know the red represents the blood of Jesus. And so you have, you have this concept of justice, right? And, and mercy, uh, together, even in the coverings of the Ark of the Covenant. They shall cover it with a blue cloth and a scarlet one as well. Now, when we come to verse 14, it says, And they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. This is talking about the, the altar in the courtyard. And uh, this is just an interesting observation. This is where the cross happened and the, and the lamb was slain. And when you mix two colors, what do you get to get purple? Blue and red, and you get purple. So just an interesting perspective as to how Justice and mercy are, are uh, together. In uh, Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And so we he- see that here in the sanctuary that uh, the entities come together 
and it keeps us balanced as Christians. Um, we have our afternoon session happening later on today, and it's what every Adventist should know, the hinge that makes or breaks Adventism. And this is what I believe that every Adventist should know and be able to defend. And so I'll be going through some key passages, and I'll be, before that, going at a historical perspective as to what doctrine has been attacked the most, and then be delving into um, this, this concept that I believe makes or breaks Adventism. And so let's bow our heads together as we close this session. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for, for truth. And that as Adventists, we have a reason for our identity, a reason for our mission. And we pray that you would motivate us with the concept of truth being your person, that you would motivate us in the relationship between truth and growth, that you would motivate us in knowing that truth matters most in an end-time context, that as we interact with our family members and our friends that perhaps do not know you, that you'd help us to give a word in season to them in a loving Christ-like way. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you'd like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.